numbers. We live by numbers. We track and count and measure everything. And sometimes we think the only numbers that really matter are the big ones. But it's the single digits that make the difference. The Bible says that heaven rejoices with the number one. Yeah, heaven rejoices each time even one person comes to know Jesus. We pastors dream about big numbers, and we should. But a daily focus on one meaningful interaction for Christ, that's the true difference maker. One friend, one family member, one co-worker, one person at a time. We want to see God move in our nation like we have never seen before. But it all starts with one. I've got my one. And now I'm challenging you and your church to join us and to find yours. Because ultimately, the only number that really matters is one. Who's your one? We're in the midst of a series called Who's Your One, as the video is about. We've been asking the question, who's the people in our lives? Who's the person in our lives that God has placed there for us to be able to share the gospel with them? And let me just tell you that I read a statistic this week that kind of floored me, kind of shocked me, made me kind of um, think about some things. I want to share that with you and begin to ask the same question for us. What is, what does this statistic teach us, tell us? And here's the statistic I heard that when uh, kind of did a survey and Got some honest answers, as honest as you can get about these kind of things. And they found out that 20% of believers are willing to invite another believer to their church. 20% of believers are willing to invite another believer to their church. And so think about the situation. You're at home. You look across the street. There's a moving van in the uh, in the driveway. They're pulling out. And you're thinking, all right, this is this is good. Somebody new to the neighborhood. And you go over and you... Take them cookies or ask them for cookies or whatever you do in that kind of situation and uh, go in, you say hello, you begin a conversation and somehow in the conversation, well, where are you moving from? Well, we're from uh, Georgia. Well, that's great. What, what part of Georgia? We're down on the southeast coast of Georgia. Awesome. That's awesome. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you. All that stuff. And, and uh, the person says to them something about church. Yeah, we went to First Baptist Church in a, down in uh, southeast Georgia. Well, awesome. I go to First Baptist Church, Goodlettsville. Why don't you come to church with us next week? Okay. In that scenario, only 20% of people would even get to that point and ask that question at the end. Now, let's just do some quick math. This isn't going to be hard math. Okay. If one out of five would ask somebody to come, that means four out of five would not. So 20% would invite, 80% would not. That's asking someone that's already a believer, that you know to be a believer, to come with you to church, only 20% would do that. I, I bet you can imagine that the number goes down when you talk about unbelievers or unchurched. This is the number. In a conversation with an unbeliever, unchurched person, 2% of believers said they would invite them. Two. 98% said they would not. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. Now, my, my assumption is, and maybe this is a bad assumption, we'll talk about maybe why in a little bit, 
Well, my assumption is that most of us in this room are people that have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have been saved by Him. We have been changed, and our eternal destination has been secured with Him. And so we are people who are believers, followers of Jesus Christ. But let's assume for a moment that my life history was different. That I didn't grow up in a family that believed that. I didn't grow up in a family that took me to church. I didn't grow up in a family that told me about Jesus. By the time I was nine years old and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I had heard about Jesus all of my life, multiple times a month, many times, multiple times a week. I had a grandmother who asked me about salvation stuff. I had a grandfather who went on mission trips. I had a mom and dad that were very invested in my salvation. And so imagine for a moment that's not my scenario, though. But instead, I grew up in a family that didn't go to church. Maybe that is, maybe that is your story. I didn't go to church, didn't encourage us in the faith, didn't try to get me to go and hear about Jesus. But in my life, at work and at school and places out in the community, I'm around Christians all the time because I live in this area. Think about this for a minute. If that's who you were, you didn't have anybody around, you didn't have anybody in your family that was encouraging you to go to church or to investigate Jesus, there is only a 2% chance that those Christians are going to share with you the most important thing about their lives. The most basic element of following Jesus is encouraging other people to do the same. One of my favorite stories comes at the beginning of uh, the Gospel of John. It's a story of brothers. I think we've got it up on the screen right there, right? Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. I love this question. We're going to leave it here for a minute. Nathanael asked him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Philip goes to him and says, we've been talking about this one that was going to come, that was going to save us all, and I found him. He's from Nazareth. And his brother Nathanael said, Nazareth? Like nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. Nothing. Like what? Not from there, no. And then Philip gives just the most basic answer to him that I love. Come and see. Come and see. Just come. Investigate. Look. The most basic invitation that believers can give to those in our lives, in our schools, in our communities that do not yet know Jesus Christ is come and see. And yet, only 2% in the latest poll says they would be willing to do that. Perhaps we have lost sight of the significance of the situation. Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan preacher a long time ago, talked about giving God the first thoughts of every morning. Thanking Him for the rest that you have been given, of casting your day upon Him, giving Him all the concerns of your day. But then he also said this, which I think is, is interesting, and he, he wrote this about um, three or four hundred years ago, so the language is a little different, so kind of work through that with me. He says, think of the mercy of a good night's rest. So he says, when you wake up in the morning, give God the glory, give Him thanks for the rest, and think about how good the night's rest was. And then he says, But also think of how many spent that night in hell. How many spent it in prison? How many in cold, hard lodgings? How many suffering from agonizing pains and sickness, weary of their beds and lives? 
Think of how many souls were that night called from their bodies terrifyingly to appear before God. And think how quickly days and nights are rolling on. How speedily your last day and night will come. He said, as you think about that final day, think about what it is lacking in your spiritual preparation of your soul and pursue it without delay. I think we have lost sight of the importance of what hangs in the balance. Luke chapter 16. You've got your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 16, verse 19. We're going to read a story about a subject that's not real easy to preach on, and I haven't preached on a lot. If you're visiting with us today, you're a guest, you're new here, you haven't been here very much, or you've been here, this is like your first time, and you think every time I go to church, the preacher talks about money or hell. We're not talking about money today. We are going to talk about hell, but this is not something we do all the time. Maybe we need to do it more. But as I was thinking through this series of messages about who's your one, I got to this point that part of the reason that we're no longer willing to share our faith or excited to share our faith is because we've forgotten what is at stake. And the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about this kind of stuff. We're going to read a story in Luke 16, 19 through through 31 about it. We're going to talk about it today. And some of you may get uncomfortable in the midst of this. Some of us may get convicted in the midst of this. But here's what I want you to understand I'm not doing this today primarily for those, and there may be some of you in this room who do not yet know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And my prayer is that hearing this today, that will lead you to want to investigate what it would take for you not to end up in the eternal destination of hell. But primarily today, I'm speaking to people in this room that are already saved that this is not our destination because I think that when we understand what's at stake, it makes much more sense for us to be enthusiastic about the urgency of sharing our faith. Some people get uncomfortable with this. I read a story this week about an old Southern Baptist preacher named Vance Havner who's always good with one-liners and He was preaching at a country church early on in his days as a preacher, and a farmer came up to him afterward. He preached on hell that day, and the farmer says, Pastor, I don't think you need to preach on hell anymore. I think you need to preach on Jesus, meek, and mild. And Havner said, the problem is, that's the guy that gave me all the information. Jesus talked about hell almost as much as any subject he talked about. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, he says this, There is a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. Now, just a couple of things about this man from the beginning, and then we'll get deeper into into what's going on here in a moment. But just so you know, when it says the word rich there, it means really rich. It doesn't mean kind of rich. It doesn't mean a little rich. It means really, really rich. When it says dressed in purple, we all look at that and go, okay, big deal. In their day and time, purple meant royalty. Purple was the most expensive dye you could get for clothing. And so this is a guy that's not only rich, he's letting everybody know he's rich. When it says that he wore fine linen, that's probably Egyptian linen, the most expensive fabric they could get as an undergarment over his coat that he would wear over that. And then when it says feasting lavishly every day, what it literally says there is enjoying himself with so much food every day. He is having a feast every day and he is proudly displaying who he is. So the picture you have here is a rich man dressed to the nines, eating the best food that he could find to his full and beyond every day. Verse 20. 
But a poor man named Lazarus, which means those who God watches after or takes care of, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. So this is the setup. These are these two guys. You have the rich guy, purple, linen, uh, eating everything he wanted every day. And then you've got the poor guy. It's not just any poor guy, Lazarus, which they would have snickered about probably, that his name was the one that God takes care of, and then he's in this condition. He's covered with sores, probably not a, a leprosy thing because nobody would have been around. He's begging every day. These are probably sores because he's unable to move. When it says he was lying at his gate, literally the phrase there is he was thrown at this gate. He was laid at the gate. He was placed at the gate. So my understanding of this passage, what's going on here is, you have a rich man living in a very very, uh, very important part of the city. He would have been an important man because of the purple, the fine linen. He probably lived in a nice house. He had a gate out in front of his house, and he was eating every day inside in a major way. Outside is a guy named Lazarus who's covered with sores because he can't move, like bed sores almost. He's been thrown at the gate. He is hungry. He is probably exposed to the elements all the time. He can't move himself, and nobody's going to move him. And he's longing to be filled with whatever they could get. But instead, all he gets is the dogs come and lick his sores. Now, just so you know, dogs in that day, we've talked about this, I think, were not man's best friend. They were considered vile animals. Now, I know for some of you, your precious little dog is not a vile animal, okay? For some of you, your dog is to you, all right? But for some of you, they're not. And we have, we have a dog. We've had a couple of dogs and love our dogs. But in their day and time, dogs were considered nasty, dirty, disease-carrying animals. So you see the contrast, right? Rich, great place. Guy lying, dogs licking his sores. Next verse, it goes on to say this. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, one thing to notice there is there's no burial, there's no service, there's no kind of respect for him, but he's carried to be in Abraham's side, which would have meant heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. So even in this life, he's taken care of. There probably were family around. He was buried properly. And being in torment in Hades, there's the reversal. He looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tongue of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received good things, just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you were in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from here cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warm them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father, Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses, if they don't listen to the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. 
Now, there are a couple of things that I want to point out, and this is kind of the, the trajectory. This is the path of the sermon for the rest of this time. These things. We're going to look at a couple of things in this parable about this man in particular. We're going to look at a couple of things that the Bible teaches about the place of hell, and then we're going to talk about what we do once we understand the burden of it. Again, this is not something that's easy to talk about, but it's reality. It's talked about in Scripture repeatedly. The things that I want you to notice about this man is, first of all, he has everything the world could offer him. He has everything that would be good for us to think we have. He has a nice home. He's wealthy. He has made it. He has some sort of power because of the the royalty signification of the purple. He has wealth. He has everything he needs to eat. And yet it's not enough. Secondly, I want you to notice this. He is religious. Now, how do we know that? Well, first of all, there's lots of debate about whether this is an actual story, this is actually something that happened, or this is a parable that Jesus is teaching. Regardless, the audience to whom Jesus is telling the story is important, and the audience to whom Jesus is telling the story is the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. He's telling this story not for them as religious leaders to identify with Lazarus. He is telling this story for them, the religious leaders, to identify with the rich man. He wants them to see themselves as the rich man. Now, my guess is they didn't because they didn't get most of Jesus' stuff. But he's saying to them, this guy's religious. How do we know from the story? from the story because when he gets in trouble he looks up at father abraham he says father abraham abraham was the symbol of the jewish religion most people think most scholars think that this man in this story is depicted as a good jewish moral religious man who had done all the right steps of the religion but had no relationship with god himself it's even characterized in the fact that he's not given a name In Scripture, when someone's not given a name, they are identified as what they are or what they do. And this man is identified as the one who was rich. He had lost his identity to the things that he was trying to attain. And so as a result, he was religious without a relationship. He looked good on the outside, but the inside was rotting away. Jesus would later look at the Pharisees and call them whitewashed tombs. People that are everybody around him would go, boy, he was a good man, man. He was a great guy. Man, he was an awesome guy. He was a good, moral man. But he did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In his case, he didn't have a relationship with the God of the religion that he was about. Here's the thing that is dangerous for those of us that did grow up in Christian homes and Christian churches. We're taking a church as children and all of that. If we're not careful, we can give our full cooperation, our full attention, our full devotion to a church or to a religion or to a set of things to do or not do instead of committing our lives to the person of Jesus Christ. And in the end, this guy still tries to depend upon the religious figure that is there, Abraham, to get him out of the situation. And again, think about the people to whom Jesus is talking. He's talking to Pharisees who were the religious leaders of their day. And he's saying to them, your religion isn't going to get you anywhere. It is only through a relationship that you are going to find peace and that you are going to find yourself, in this case, at Abraham's side or, in our case, in the presence of God Almighty. I saw some statistics this week. 
about what Americans believe about heaven and hell and all of that. And surprisingly, the belief in hell is actually rising a little bit. So somewhere between 60, 65, 70% of Americans believe in a literal hell, a place people go after death. But you know what's interesting about that? They ask, how many of you are going to hell? And uh, 4% said they were. Here's what I'm going to tell you. From what I understand of Scripture, what I understand about what Jesus has taught, there's a lot more than 4% currently living in our country on that pathway. There are a lot more people that are destined for there than even we think or imagine. What this story shows us here is that when you're there, it is not a destination where you want to be. What does this teach us? What does the Bible teach us about hell? Well, just six things real quickly. We'll go through these very quick. I know y'all hear six things. You're like, woo! We'll go quickly. First of all, hell is eternal. It's forever. And ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. Like, we talk about things, man, that lasted forever, and we meant like 20 minutes. That movie was forever, and it was three hours. I had to wait forever at the store. I mean, there were three people in front of me. Forever is forever, without end, never. And here's the thing. You get one chance in this life to make a decision that impacts your life for eternity. And that is whether or not to accept what Jesus Christ has done for you and follow Him. Commit your life to Him. Accept the salvation that comes through Him. And if you do, then you spend eternity forever with Him in paradise. If you don't, you spend eternity separated from Him forever. There are no take-backs. There are no do-overs. You don't get 40 chances to make it right. You want to come back as somebody else and try to do it all over again. This is a one-shot deal. I think it's interesting that when he says, hey, can I just go tell my brothers about it? He's just trying to get out. And the response there in the story is, there is a great chasm that has been fixed between us and you. Those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. He says that you cannot go up here, we cannot come down there. Once this has happened, it is over, it is done, it is sealed, it is forever. There's no parole in hell. There's no good behavior, release early, work study. It's forever. The second thing we see in this passage is that it is a place of pain. It says that when he was in Hades, which is the Greek word for Sheol, which is the Jewish word for hell, it says that he was in torment in hell. And that word means terrible, conscious, irreversible, physical, emotional, and mental suffering. Torment is what it means. It's a place where pain is incessant with nothing to knock the edge off. Third, it's a place of fear where worry and paranoia are consistently with you. We're about to enter what is possibly my least favorite month on the calendar. 
We're not far from October. I like the beginning of October because it means fall break. For us, that means some time away. But I don't like turning on the... I'm not a huge horror fan. Some of you like horror movies. Like, that's your thing. That's not me. And I don't like turning on and everything I'm watching has something to do with Halloween, right? Turn into a month-long celebration of that. I was never a big haunted house guy, you know? Never one of those that wanted to go to the woods and pretend like there were zombies chasing me. So that's just not me, all right? But the good thing about all those places is, for the most part, you can assure yourself these aren't real and there's an ending. I may not be able to see it at this moment and I may be willing to punch anybody that gets in my way of it when I see them, but there is an ending, right? Like you know, you know if you've ever been in one of those places and it's dark, and then just as you're about to get out, there's that like there's a curtain or a little door, and it just creases open, and you can see the light start to flee. Like it's in darkness, and the light starts coming, and you're like, "Yes, we're here!" Right? Like there's this relief that comes. Imagine your life being lived continually in that state of fear and paranoia, with no end in sight. Literally finding yourself in a horror movie without a runtime that ends in two and a half hours for eternity. Fourth, it's a place of sadness. This man here, rich man, looks up and says, Let me go tell my brothers. You can sense the agony in his own life that this is not a place to be. Dante, in uh, his writing The Inferno, which I have not read all of, but I've read portions of. Dante, in his Inferno, says that there's a sign as you enter one of the levels of hell in his writing that says, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. No hope at all, ever. Hell is a place of isolation. I was reading this week the testimony of a guy that... Um, the last couple of weeks, if you've been here, the, the, today's video was from J.D. Greer, who's the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. But the two weeks before that was a guy named Johnny Hunt, who's a pastor for a long time in Woodstock, Georgia. He's not the pastor there anymore. He's moved on to work for the North American Mission Board. But I was reading this week a story of his. He was saved as an adult. And he, from all accounts, was a guy that raised all kinds of rockas. He caused all kinds of problems. He was continually hustling people in pool halls. He was a guy that that drank too much, didn't talk like you should talk, none of that. He is not a guy that you would go, boy, that guy one day is going to speak to millions about coming to faith in Christ. And he says he remembers when he was in that place, a guy talking to him and saying this about hell. And he was like, oh, but the thing is, when I think about hell, I know that my friend is going to be there and that guy's going to be there and we're all just going to be there. I'd rather be with those guys than everybody that I've ever known that's a Christian. But here's the thing, when you get to hell, it is solitary confinement, complete isolation. And what I find interesting here is this man in this story says he would do anything not to let his brothers come to where he was. Let me go. Send somebody. It's a place of isolation. And then there's the last thing. It's a place of separation. Imagine being separated from the protective common grace of a good God. Because that's what hell is. 
So I just want you to think about that for a minute. And I want you to think about this, all right? Over the last few weeks, if you've been here, we've been talking about choosing that one person in your life that needs to hear the gospel, that one person that you need to share your faith with. And so whether that's at work, whether that's at school, with people you sit next to, whether that's people you know in the community, whether that's friends you have, it's not just, hey, man, I want them to be a part of the club with me. Hey, man, it's awesome. I want them to come to church with me. Like this is the reality of their souls outside of Christ, that they are destined, whoever it is, your one. So put your one's name in this, whatever person that is that you have imagined, that you have prayed for, that you begin to think about how am I going to share the gospel with them. And if you haven't done that, then begin to think of somebody in your life, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a schoolmate, somebody that you know that needs to hear about Jesus. And I want you to think about that name and think that person, whoever that is, is destined for a life of eternity and pain and fear and sadness and hopelessness and isolation and separation in the worst imaginable place. In fact, whatever you can imagine hell to be that bad, it is worse than you can imagine. And then pray God would give you the urgency to share your faith with them. So what do we do? In the midst of all of this, what do we do? Two things and then we're done. First of all, we need to recognize and repent of our excuses. Listen, I understand. When I start talking about this, listen, I understand it gets uncomfortable in here. This is the most quiet y'all have been in a long time. I understand it gets uncomfortable. I understand that part of that's because most of us, if you come to us, you go, if I were to just ask you one-on-one and you were honest with me and I said, how... Have you shared your faith with anybody in the last year? Maybe you have. Maybe you did last week. But the large majority of people in this room, if studies are true, have not. And if I begin to ask you, I know we've all got reasons. Well, listen, I would love to. I really would. But, so we need to begin to recognize and repent of our own excuses. I'm just going to give you five. There are many, many more, and yours may be unique and different to you. And so if it is, then recognize it and repent. But the first one is we need to repent of the spiritual apathy or lethargy in our lives. When we fail to seek God with a passionately devoted lifestyle, it leads to a lack of desire to share with others. And for some of you in this room, the reason you haven't shared your faith in a long time is because you are spiritually dry. You haven't been giving your life, your devotion, your heart to the Lord. And if we are going to be people that share our faith with others, we have to have something to share. And I don't mean initial salvation. I'm talking about a life that has been filled with the goodness of God, with the Spirit of God, with an understanding of God. And to do that, it means that we have to break free from the spiritual apathy in our lives and focus our attention and devotion on Him. Sometimes that's caused by number two, the second excuse, which is we need to recognize and repent from our busyness. I know you're busy. I'm busy. We're all busy. We all got things going on. We all got calendars that are full. But when that becomes an excuse for not sharing with someone who is destined for hell the reality of God's love for them, then we are too busy. And our calendars are too full. And we need to step back and say what is really important in our lives. We need to recognize and repent of the busyness in our lives. 
We need to recognize and repent of the fear of rejection in our lives. This is the one I get most of. Well, what if they say no? Well, what if this time? Well, what if they don't want to listen? What if they ask too many questions? What if? What if? And we are fearful of rejection in our own lives, and yet we are allowing people to continue down a path that will lead to eternal destruction because of our fear. Well, you don't know where I work. You're right, I don't. You don't know my neighborhood. You're right. You don't know mine either. And I've used these excuses. Even though you're a pastor, I've used these excuses in my own life. We need to recognize and repent of our fear of rejection. We need to recognize and repent for our lack of accountability. We don't even ask each other these questions anymore. When's the last time a Christian asked you, hey, have you shared your faith with anybody recently? I'm not talking about from a pulpit where it's easy to say that. I'm talking about eye-to-eye, face-to-face. Who's the last person you told about Jesus? You know why we don't ask that question? Because we don't want anybody asking us. Your Sunday school classes, your small groups, life groups, in those discussions, in those prayer times, how many of us in those prayer times have listed in those prayer times people that we are actively praying for, asking for the Lord to save? Most prayer times, most small groups times, most life groups, Sunday school prayer times, when you look at those lists, and they're important lists, lists of physical ailments and emotional needs, those are important, and I'm not saying we don't do that. But my question is, how many times do those lists also have on there people that are spiritually dead that need to be brought to life by Jesus? And how many times are we asking each other those questions? How many times in a Sunday school class are you saying, hey, so you, you've been, we've been praying for John for... for three weeks now have you had a chance to talk to john no we're just gonna pray for him longer well let's keep praying but look for a chance to talk to him this isn't the only area we've lost we've lost accountability in our lives but it's one where we have seriously fallen short and here's the last one we need to recognize and repent of the church the big c church american church our church not being intent on reaching the lost. That we've become very comfortable being who we are and what we have and having it all together here instead of reaching the community. The first step when we understand the severity of the consequences that come from someone that doesn't accept Jesus Christ is we recognize and repent of our excuses and then we do this. This is the last thing and then we're done. We go and we tell you have to be intentional. We have to be accountable with somebody in your life that you're going to help with along and hold you accountable. And you got to be bold. So we're going to talk more next week as we finish up this series about this. About what it looks like to be intentional, to be accountable, and to be bold. But I just want us to think for today of what it would look like for us to be people who repented of what has held us back and then would obey and go forward. The most fascinating thing to me about this whole passage here is how evangelistic the rich man becomes in hell. He's one of the most evangelistic people we see in the entire Bible. I don't mean that by... He actually did anything. I'm just talking about the story, right? What does he say once he gets to hell? I don't want to be here, but what does he say? Somebody go tell my brothers. Somebody go find them. Send somebody to tell them. Can you tell somebody to go tell my brothers? I don't want them here. They need to know. My prayer is 
that we would have that burden while there is still time to go and tell. I'm going to ask you this week, I told you this earlier in the worship service, for that one that you have in mind, that family member, that friend, that person you sit next to at school, the person you work with on a regular basis, the acquaintance you've made, the kids' soccer game, I want you to begin to pray that God would give you a burden for them because of what is coming for them if they don't accept Jesus. And that that burden would begin to lead you to share your faith with them. Answer who's your one. And then get God to give you a burden. Ask Him to give you a burden for it. Let's pray together.